You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. This is Grand Design Podcast with DJ and Jerry Grand, where we link the chains of reason of sports, politics, and culture. Welcome to episode eight of the Grand Design Podcast. With me once again is my brother, Jerry Grand. Greetings. And also is Ryan, our engineer. Hey, hey. Uh, I'd like to tell you how to get a hold of us. First is our website, granddesignpodcast.com. And you can email us at granddesigns at yahoo.com. You can follow us on Twitter at granddesignspod and follow us on Instagram at granddesignpodcast. Today, I'm going to be talking about something a little more personal, and it's having to do with hockey and an injury. Um, just to lay a little groundwork, I used to love playing hockey. I started playing about 1995, and we got up to four times a week, and ice hockey was everything to me. It would get me through my work week. It would, it would be what I would look forward to to playing. Played a couple of years at uh, the suburban school to learn to get better. And uh, eventually, uh, we started playing in adult no-check hockey leagues, USA-sanctioned adult no-check hockey league. Um, in Melvindale, we played for a little while. And in, in December 10th, 2003, on a very, very cold night, I did not want to go. I, and my pregnant wife, who was five months pregnant at the time, was laying in bed, and I called up next to her, and I said, I don't want to go. And she said, stay, don't go. Well, I went anyways. I love playing, and it turned out to be a very, very fateful night. Um, it's an hour away from where I live, so that showed how the dedication to play how it was. I mean, we we love playing. Well, this particular day, just to, to tell you how it was going on for that game, after the first period, I'm usually soaked in sweat, totally soaked in sweat. This time, none, because the players who are on my wing – before and after me were taking extra long shifts. So when I got out there, I ended up taking real short shifts. We had too many guys that day too. This is true, but it doesn't matter. The point is they were all taking longer shifts. And, and too many guys equal to no ice time. <laughs> very, very limited ice time. Well, in the second period, I was um, – I sh- the puck was going around the boards, around my goalie, and – the la- that was basically the last thing I remember because I was hit from behind by a guy who was just a beast compared to me, so much bigger. I was quicker than him. He couldn't keep up with me, so he cross-checked me from behind. Jerry, you saw it. And what, well, what was your vision of it? When you were going for the puck, instead of him going for the puck, he, in a non-checking league, wanted to be Bob Probert or Joey Coaster. He took his stick across the back of your neck and just knocked your flag to the ground. The problem was you didn't stay down too long. You you, you kind of got up a little bit because the 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 well well at I, first, but I did stay. Well, I was I lost at least two minutes of at least two maybe five minutes. I don't know. I didn't have a stopwatch on me. But the weird part is being conscious of coming back to consciousness. It started out in a really small circle and got bigger and bigger. The outside was all white, one hundred percent white. And got bigger and bigger, and there was no sound until finally it was like 
zoomed out really quickly, and all of a sudden the sound came back. I turned and looked with my head, and he was getting in the penalty box. Yeah, well, basically, when you, when you got up, I mean, asked if you were okay, you shook the dust out of your cobwebs, and you were more angry about your ice time. Well, that was the reason I got up because I said, and I literally, I used the F word to myself. I said, ain't going to happen. F it. They're not going to take any more of my time away. I put one, one knee up, put the other knee up, and, fi- and finally went and finished my shift. But I knew something was wrong. In the game for that matter. Yeah, I finished the game. I, there's the regret. I should have skated right off the ice then. But I knew something was wrong. When we came to the bench, I turned to my brother and I said, Jerry, there's something wrong with me. I, I, there's, I can tell there's something off. So did you have like shooting pain and like – Oh, like, I had tingling. Yeah. I had, I had my extremities, both feet and legs were, were – were, I don't want to say totally numb, but you know, like pins and needles. Right, yeah. Yes, exactly. I just knew something was off and I had a headache. Yeah. I had a headache like you would not believe. Hey, you got hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. It made me think I had a concussion. Um, so the, at, the, at the game ended, I was so bad. I told my brother, Jerry, I said, I can't drive. It was my car. I said, you got to drive home. And he did. I had kind of bad insurance at the time. It was an HMO. So you had to go see a doctor, get a referral, go to another doctor. And then finally, when I got to the doctor, I was going for a concussion. That's my reason for going because I thought I had a concussion. seemed like you got knocked out. I mean, that's what it sounds like to me. And that's why I thought I had these ringing headaches. And the doctor said to me, nope, you don't have a concussion. He said, actually, you're at the wrong doctor, but I'll take an x-ray for you. And he took the x-ray. He said um, – he gave me a, a referral for another doctor, of course, the HMO, and sent me home. Well, on the way home, I got a call from him and that's when I knew something was wrong. He told me, don't get in a car accident, which how can you voluntarily <laughs> yeah. do that? Yeah. He also told me, don't walk on ice. But he wouldn't tell me what was wrong. So well, the exact diagnosis, what I mean by what Yeah, yeah. He just said, there's something wrong and you need to get back to the doctor he told me. And the doctor he told me was Dr. Thomas out of St. Joseph's in Ann Arbor. So I scheduled the appointment and I go in. And this was it, – it, the, the injury happened December 3rd. It wasn't until the end of January where I finally got to see Dr. Thomas. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. so much time in between. It's oh, like- it is. And once again – I didn't know the extent of what was wrong with me at this time. So I see Dr. Thomas. He takes another x-ray and has an MRI done. Um, but that I had to come back for the MRI. But he shows me in the x-ray that my orbital bone, the bone that sticks through your skull, was off by 14 millimeters. He said that it normally it shouldn't shift more than 2 millimeters. And in the x-ray, you could literally see the bone way away from where it should have been. It was scary. That is terrifying. I went to other doctors seeing for, for headaches, and I knew it wasn't a cousin this time, but I was still having headaches. So I was going to other doctors, and at least the three doctors that I saw said the same thing. You're lucky to be alive or not in a wheelchair. Yeah. Um, it, when I went back after the MRI, um, Dr. Thomas told me about the extent of the, the, the injury. I had fractured my C2. They call that the hang- hangman's fracture. That's what happens when they hang you, and that's the bone that snaps, and that's what kills oh, you. Oh, okay. All right. He did one surgery in February of 2004, and all he did was put a bridge wire in, and it failed almost immediately. He did a second surgery in September of 2004. 
Now, at that time, he put – the first time he took – uh, the, the first surgery, he took a, a piece of bone out of my left hip. The second time, he took a piece of bone out of my right hip and tried to fuse that with instruments. That lasted for about two months. And this is the freaky part. At the time, I had one of the older refrigerators where the freezer was on the top. Now I can't do that. It has to be on the bottom. I can't even reach up. Yeah. And I went to open the, the freezer door, and it felt like spiders went from my chest crawling. I mean, a th thousand of them crawling all the way up to my forehead, to my head, top of my head. And uh, I had broken the instruments at that time. It, yeah. was, it was done. When I called Dr. Thomas, went back and, seen, and saw him, he basically cut me loose. Said, there's nothing I can do for you. I don't know. I can't help you. You're on your own. It was. It, How could it a was, doctor say that? <laughs> it was devastating. Yeah. He said. He said, if you want, you can go to Detroit Medical Center in downtown Detroit, where you can go find a doctor of your own. I had no idea what to do. I was very fortunate, though. I found the doctor who actually saved my life. His name is Doctor Tech Moon Su. He um, he just uh, he's a very funny guy and he's brilliant. I, I owe him. I literally owe him my life for what he did for me. When I went and saw him, he didn't take any. He just saw the x-rays and MRI that were taken previously. And after he saw them, he left me in the room for about 10, 15 minutes. He came back, looked me in the eye and said, if I don't fix you soon, you're going to be a, a quadriplegic and on a breathing machine. So it got even more heavy at that yeah, point. Yeah, like your wife's like slowly crumbling you know <laughs> and she was she was pregnant at the time like i told yeah, you yeah exactly like no better time right well at the way she was pregnant at the time for the first surgery but by this time we had just had had our little girl so she we, we she was not even one years old at the time we saw dr sue okay okay so we, we still it was still a very very shaky time and especially to lose a husband at that point in time would have been totally devastating for at any time let alone so uh we go for the surgery and I knew that day that it was just – it was a bad feeling. I just had this really bad feeling that something was going to go wrong. When I got out of the car, every bit of my rational mind said, run. Run the opposite way. Do not go in there. I don't want to – it took a lot of courage. It yeah. really did for me to go into that hospital that day because I just knew that something – it wasn't right. And then and, and two failed surgeries and a third one on the way, it just, the odds were against me. Mm -hmm. He told me before the surgery that it was just going to be one day that they plan on taking two ribs out of me and putting it up into my neck along with rods and screws. Well, that's not what happened. All they could do that day was take out the two ribs. Jeez. Yeah, well, they didn't tell me that. Okay, yeah. so they scheduled... The uh, second surgery for the next day was October 15th of 2005 is when this surgery happened, the first one. They tell me you're going to have the second surgery the next day at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I send my wife home. Of course, she's going to stay at the hospital for the night and uh, expecting it for me to call her when it gets close to the surgery. I couldn't sleep that night. I literally got zero sleep whatsoever. And, uh, and all through the night, I'm saying to myself, it's okay. I have the day. I can sleep during the day. I don't have to worry about it. I can get to sleep later. Six o'clock in the morning, they come in and say, we're taking you down now. I had no sleep. 
and my wife wasn't there. Yeah. I had to call my wife and just to look in her eyes when I saw her, it was not a good time. The omen really happened on the way to the surgery that day. This was the second day. Uh, they were, they were pushing me on the, on the bed and the doors opened into the, where the elevators were. There were like three or four sets of elevators. One elevator opened up and this gentleman came out with a nurse. I assume a nurse could have been a doctor straddling his chest. He was pale and just pumping his chest. And I, yeah, and I said, I looked at that and I said, uh oh, this isn't good. So we go into the room and I didn't know this at the time, but Dr. Sue came in two days later and told me the second he cut me open, I lost a pint of blood and went white as a sheet. It, uh, they also lost my spinal signal for two hours. So I was technically paralyzed for two hours on the table. I don't know how anyone else experiences being under anesthesia for a surgery, but for every surgery I had before that, it was just out. Yeah, yeah. This particular surgery, I remember seeing these neon flashes of light. I mean, just going back and forth. And it wasn't for very long, but I remember seeing it. Well, Dr. Sue explained to me why that happened. He, When he lost the signal to my skull, to my spine, he took my skull and was shifting it back and forth. Man, this is going to be it. so comfortable. <laughs> I mean, you obviously went through it. No, this is crazy. Oh, it's very crazy. Especially, yeah. well, I went through it but didn't know it at the time. True, so. but just still, it's like, just not. Yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. But. It's okay. Um, it's just that weird seeing those neon flashing lights and then knowing what it was later and he obviously he obviously found the signal and he he put uh the i have two ribs now going that are fused into my neck and my cervical spine and i have uh two rods that go from my skull to the third vertebrae with like eight screws in there wow and a lot of pain yeah a lot of pain almost every day i'm in pain yeah the more I do, the more pain I'm in, but that's beside the point. Um, Dr. Sue came in the two days later, the first day he let me rest. He comes in two days later and he's, you demand, you demand, you made it through. So apparently he wasn't thinking I was going to make it through or he wouldn't have even said that. Jeez. So that was, that made me feel good. Actually, it did. It put a smile on my face. He even said, you must have Chinese genes. Yeah. <laughs> did. So, I mean, he was a, he's a very funny guy. And like I said, he's a genius. He saved my life. Yeah. Well, he also told me, and he could have been looking out for me when he told me this, but he said it was just going to be a soft collar. It wouldn't be any big deal. That's not the case. Yeah. He put me in a halo. And that halo, that name is very ironic because what it is is a medieval torture device. Okay. So what is that? Explain that. A halo is they put a, a, it's like a a chest brace that is connected. There's rods connected to the chest, the front part of it. And the back part of it. And the, the rods go up and they put this, the rods are connected to this, what is called the halo. It goes around your head. Okay. But here's the scary part. Thick screws they take and screw them literally into your head. Yeah. Into your, I have two, you can, scars. I have two where in the forehead and two in the back of my head. Wow, because they have to have them that tight? Jeez. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. Okay, so I'm glad when they put them in because I it came down my eye. I can tell a story about that when they were putting it in. Um, 
in the hospital when they put it in, they were allowed to uh, give me some um, anesthesia local so that I didn't feel it quite as bad going in. And the two women that put him in, they were just beautiful. One was a, a Latino lady. She's brown eyes, just, just beautiful. And another was a doctor who had, uh, who was blonde and had blue eyes and short glasses. And glasses <laughs> do something to me. <laughs> so the, the blonde doctor, I'm assuming she was a doctor, was actually almost on top of me. And the, the other lady who was more of a technician was on, the, the blonde was on the left side of me, the, the, the technician on the right side of me. And as they're screwing it into my head, I literally said to myself, this is what I get for wanting to be screwed by two girls at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say that's <laughs> – that is so funny. <laughs> oh, man. My wife is in the corner yeah. watching the whole thing too. Yeah. So at least – See, there is a positive spin on it, right? <laughs> at least I cut my sense of humor out of it. Yeah, but, yeah. But the the scary part was uh, when I got out of the hospital – they weren't allowed to give me anesthesia out of the hospital for that, and they have to tighten the uh, screws. So just all this pressure in your head? Oh, yeah. And let me tell you, when she tightened it, that was immense, immense pain. And besides that, when you're in the halo, you can't change your facial expression. Jesus. You, you, you can't smile. You can't crown. You can't, I mean, you can't frown. You can't cry. Yeah. Nothing because it – Think of the, the screws into your forehead. They are tight, pulling everything. So if you change a facial expression, the tightness just brings a whole bunch of pain. So you're, I was stuck in that same facial expression for almost eight weeks. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, it, it is. But it's necessary. You know, that's like what you need, especially like with your spine and all that. You know, your head moving around could just oh, make absolutely. that so much worse, you know. So. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I wasn't used to it because – you know, when you walk, you know, when doors and stuff, but these things came out, they were, they were out a good, yeah. maybe six inches to eight inches in front of you. And so I wasn't used to it. So I would, I would hit walls and stuff when yeah. walking by and, and it would reverberate. My little girl who, she was about one at the time, she recoiled when she first saw me because her daddy, this was yeah, not her like daddy. Frankenstein, she saw. You know? <laughs> no, you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. To her, that's probably exactly what I was. Yeah. I was a monster. Yeah. And, um, when she finally warmed up to me and I would pick her and put her up in my arms, she would grab out of the bars. <laughs> it's like, don't it's, do that. No, well, <laughs> yeah. she didn't want them on me. Oh, yeah, I could yeah. tell. She was trying to get them off of me and, yeah, yeah. and she would shake me and I would have to literally – I would have to go with the flow. I wouldn't yeah. – I could not hold back at all because – and she was only less than one, so she really wasn't that strong. Yeah. But still, it was – it was a weird experience having to see your daughter like that for the first time and yeah. coming home. Did you talk to the guy ever after the no. fact? Yeah. No, never did. Uh, tried to do lawsuits. Yeah. And the, uh, well, there's one lawyer that I'll never ever go to them again. The one that you 1 800 and call them oh, yeah. with, uh, with that name after it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he literally says to me, I called the Canton office. He says, I'm not saying you don't have a lawsuit, but because you didn't get carried off in the stretcher, I'm not taking your lawsuit. Now, I see those commercials all the time. They say they care for people. They care for you when you're injured. They didn't care for me one bit because yeah. he didn't think that he could have – he didn't work hard enough. Yeah. He, he, I had to work too hard to get to, – to win the case. I think a lot of the problem was, and this is for hockey in general, it's what I call the Don Cherry mentality, the thug mentality. That guy who hit me, he 
he was he was falling for the what was in the culture and the culture in USA hockey men's hockey and it's supposed to be no check is hit. Yeah. You're not a man if you don't hit. That's and, true. Yeah, no. Well, a referee once told us for us it was check no check. For the guys with skill, you have to check. But the guys with no skill, obviously, you don't check them, you don't hurt them. So those refs knew right off the bat they were going to allow checking. And this guy was, like I said to start, he was trying to be Bob Probert. Yeah, he was. And I, like I said, I don't think he was trying to kill me. I don't think he was trying to break my neck. No, he was just playing the game of he hockey. Was, he was trying to check me and didn't realize how much. I don't even think to this day that guy knows what he's done to me. No, yeah. no. Yeah, he does but, not. but once again, I don't believe he was out to hurt me. He was out to check. Me. Yeah, that's you know that's probably right. You know, it's like you don't you wouldn't want to you you'd have to be really crazy to be that kind of person. Not saying there isn't, but I would probably put money that he didn't mean to do something like that. But no, didn't. again, when you're saying that there had already rules that you're not supposed to be checking, it's like. Come well, on, man. We're in an adult, we're yeah. an adult league where these guys have to get up and go to work the next day. Exactly. And that's do. why it shouldn't happen. It, yeah, for sure. And this this brings us back to that uh, thug or Don Cherry mentality because it goes from Don Cherry and him. You got to hit, hit, hit. That's what it means to be hockey, to be a man, the, the Gordie Howe type of hockey. And still to this day, he still preaches that. Yes, he does. And it, it literally trickles down all the way into the might level. And that's what they live in. That's what they think hockey is. But I know it can be different because the culture of the the women's sports, there is no checking in women's sports. If you watch women's, um, the Olympics or even just uh, they even have pro leagues now, there's no checking. Yeah. They don't. So it's possible to do it without checking. You can do it in the pros all you want. You can do it in the minors all you want or even going up to it. But when you're in a, a um, USA sanctioned no check hockey league, there shouldn't be there shouldn't be checking. I agree. It shouldn't be necessary. Now yeah. for the youth hockey, they're putting stop signs in the back of their shirts now. That's I think that's, that's just more like specific. A target. <laughs> well, <it's>, <laughs> no, you're <laughs> right, but stop. I think that's specifically for if you hitting, can read this straight in the back, not just for checking, Which, yeah, but pretty for much hitting in the almost back. what no, happened. It is, it is, I, but I'm, I guess it's a nuance. You know? Well, there's, there, there's a claim of trying to change the culture when they're not. Because like Ryan just said, that's more of a target. It just gives them more of a reason yeah. to hit. They don't need a stop sign with the women. Well, during this time, in between my second and third surgery, you guys can remember what happened with Todd Bartuzzi and Steve Moore. Oh, yeah. He, Todd Bartuzzi chased down Steve Moore in, a, in an NHL game, drove him into, hit him from behind, drove him into the ice, broke his neck, three vertebrae, and he's never played hockey since Steve Moore. Jeez. And Bartuzzi has shown no remorse and says he doesn't have to show well, remorse. He did show remorse when – remember the, the press conference he had and he was crying? Okay. That I, was I'd the, have to say that's remorse. Yeah, I mean was, he was crying. Unless he's an actor. That was for the cameras. I mean it, the following games and the following career, he ne- – I mean even when Moore couldn't play anymore, he wouldn't recognize – they wouldn't even talk about it and well, wouldn't even say sorry publicly. I don't forgive Todd Partuzzi. It's not mine to forgive him. It's absolutely Steve Moore to forgive it. However, I agree. the ones I blame are Brad May, first of all, because he – I guess you need to tell a story. Uh, Steve Moore had hit uh, uh, Marcus Naslin of the Vancouver Canucks and knocked him out for three games, knocked him out of play for three games. And Brad May said, put a price on Steve Moore's head. Yeah. Because of that right there, I blame Brad May. And – Mark Crawford, the coach, in between. That's the, who's more of the fall is the coach because he told them. In between the periods, 
he pointed to uh, Steve uh, Moore's number and said he needs to pay for what he's done. And then Todd Bartuzzi went out and did what he did. That still happens today. It does. But once again, it goes back to what I brought this up in, the thug mentality. Yeah. It takes a thug to do something like that. It takes a thug to point at someone's number for a game, a useless – and it's, it's a kid's game. There's, there's no – it wasn't even on the line for the Stanley Cup. Yeah. I mean yeah. it was just a regular season game. This was revenge. I mean a thug mentality. I don't think it has any place in society, let alone into a hockey game. Yeah, that kind of bleeds over probably into a lot of other stuff, you know, and that's probably so common in every sport of its football, hockey, whatever. You know, if they're aggressive players, it doesn't matter if it's a professional game, amateur, whatever. I mean, they're going to play just that aggressive. I mean, they shouldn't, but there's just so many people probably like that, you know. Yeah, and but I think it's a problem in the culture of hockey. Yeah. I really do. I at least men's hockey, like I said, yeah. there's well, a difference. Part of it is none of it's going away a little bit, but you got to have that thug to self police. You got to have that Bob Prober and Joey Kosher to go out there, like Wayne Gretzky had Marty McSorley, and no one dared touched Wayne Gretzky because of Marty McSorley and Mark Messier. Period. They weren't allowed to touch. But and those realize, guys would go back and retaliate. You realize though you're advocating vigilantism? I'm just telling you, that's the, the hockey. They have because the rest won't call. We had the discussion earlier about referees. All right. So because they can't call it, they have to the, the teams have to self police. And you gotta have that goon that can skate. I mean, uh who's the guy in Washington now? But he's got some talent. He's the new age goon. I forget his name. Ryan Reeves is the goon. Oh, uh, Wilson. Tom Wilson. Yes, on, yes, yes. That guy's got some skill, unlike any other uh, goon, big guy. And well, he, he can skate. Usually the goons can't skate. But he protects uh, the, the star players. But that, if you were doing – we started this whole podcast off talking about principle. If you were living by principle – you would not need to vigilante. You would not because you would know that's not how you should. But here we go again with John Cherry. Is that whole? That's him whole self policing. You know, you, you got to have that thug so because the refs won't hey, look. If the refs called the game, it'd be like the women. They wouldn't need to have the thug. The thug would be out if the refs call it like they should. But because they, don't, I agree. There's blame as far as the well, thug mentality. I want to say that it's that, spread around. That's eighty percent right there. If you take away that the refs did their job, you wouldn't have a need for the thug. I totally agree. If they called every single play, every single infraction, like they should, like they should, you're absolutely right. That would take it away. But let's just say they don't. Why do they have to still have the thug mentality? Like Ryan Why? said, though, you're going to have that one person that's, you yeah. know, is going to have that, that just mentality that's just going to do it for whatever reason. It's that one person that's going to take it to the nth degree for whatever reason because he was brought up that way. Yeah, he wants he, the winner. You know, it's being a man. I mean, I could go. Well, then that one person would still be wrong. No, I, yeah, absolutely. But that one person still going to take it to the next level and be dirty. That thug man, here we go, that thug mentality. Well, if you're going to police it or vigilante it, as I said earlier, wouldn't it be to get him out of there saying this is not how we do it? We, I mean, if you, if they were truly men, they would take care of it in the locker room, say this is not how we do it. This is not how we play the game here. And then it wouldn't happen again. You'd get one instance and you'd get the social feedback and then it wouldn't happen again. Yeah, that's, you know, okay. And, and I guess in theory, it should happen that way. But we were talking the other day about Gordy Howe and Ted Lindsay. I mean, I was watching some film of them and T Ted was a little guy who was a little instigator. Now the guys would go back after Ted until Gordy came in the picture and those guys just turned around and left. They wanted nothing to do with Gordy Howe. And he was that, I mean, come on, that was the whole era of thugness. 
I agree. Okay, but that was a different era, and I don't think it applies necessarily to today's hockey world. It's, However, it's, Gordie Howe, I think, is a symptom. The way he played with the elbows up yeah, into the well, corners. It's kind of my point. It's bled all the way from the 50s all the way now. It's that yeah. Gordie. I mean, I even hear Gordie Howe hat trick. Okay. Can we think? Why do we have to constantly? Tradition is not necessarily. I would agree a good with thing. you, but for some reason, it's not happening. I mean, it, we just, hockey is that in football, too. And when it doesn't matter. happen, people get their necks broken. And I'm, I just talked myself and Steve Moore, two people that have had their necks broken because of the thug mentality that is in the culture of men's hockey. And I, unfortunately, it's, it's going to happen when these girls start playing with the boys. That's going to be the ne- that's going to be the next injury, or, or I want to call it a thug, but it's almost like Ryan saying that's a girl. When we were talking about when the other teams realized that we had a girl goalie, they took it easy. They they thought they had a nice until night. until they realized she was good. And then, but then when they started, she showing them up and they couldn't score. They got upset. They started getting dirty and taking on everybody else. So my whole point is there's that, there's that thugness again. You're showing again. me the flaw of, of the male thinking. That should have mattered. So so if it was a male person, a male I'm, goalie. But I'm telling you, you're going to get that one person that's a girl playing football. I'm going to eliminate her just for the sake of – it's wrong. It's completely wrong. It's sad. But it's almost like what Ryan's saying. It's that one person that – it's yeah, it's beyond sad. It's disgusting. But it's still going to – that one person is going to be there to take it to that level. And what can you do to prevent that? It's philosophical. You need to you need to get principle that, that the thug mentality That's is not how you to play get that the game. Into the sport, just because it's difficult, I agree, doesn't mean it shouldn't it, be done. No, no, I agree. But you, that person there, the last thing on his mind is philosophical principles. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Like like the ethics of emergency. Okay, you can't. There's a fire in a house. You're not going to sit there and think philosophically. Oh, what do I do? This is. A, they have to be already in your head. See, if they were already in his head, then he wouldn't have, he would have known that it was wrong. See, it, it's, it's way too late to do it on the ice. It has to be done well in advance. And I'm even talking when they're kids. Cause that's the proper time to start giving proper moral principles. Mor- morality is right or wrong. Look, it can't be choice. done because, you know, they used to play with no helmets and then the safety and they, no, it's mandatory before it was. Well, just think about that. They, there was a time when Gordy Howe played where they wouldn't lift the puck. I know those guys could. They played every single day. I know they could lift the puck, but they never lifted the puck. Why? Goalies weren't wearing masks. So if they can police themselves doing that, why can't they police themselves in other aspects as well? I agree, but I will say the equipment was nothing to her now. They got boomerangs for blades That's to not wear. That's not the point. They That's got question they marks. Did it. They did it. They were able to, to not do something because they knew that would hurt the goalie. They knew it. And the second you put the mask on the goalie, what happened? Well, I think they started shooting for his face, his head. I think that that happened because of the first slap shot. And then, then it, it's all. You had that one person. I'm going to He's got a mask now. Uh, no, it had to happen. There's an evolution of the game. So you're right. But the point is they collectively, they said, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go after the goalie's face because he wasn't wearing a mask. That was, that was living on principle. And when did it stop? When did the, that principle stop? Yeah. Well, when, they, when the goalie see, when donned they got, the mask. got the mask. And all of a sudden, principal went out the window. And but from the, that point, yes, it, did. it grew. But it, didn't, doesn't that prove that they can live by principle? Doesn't it prove that if – In if, one aspect of not lifting the puck. You're right. If you can do it by one aspect, you should be able to do no, it by I a agree. thousand aspects. But, you, know, okay. you shouldn't but limit it to the number of – Gordy had uh, principles when he was going down and shooting at the goalie. But when going to the corners, principal went out the window and the elbows were up in the I air agree. and it was all out the door. Why does it stop there? 
Why does it stop there? Because Gordy's that one person. Gordy was a great player. I don't want to take anything away from him. But the elbows in the corners going up, that's vicious and wrong. Now, I don't care how great he was. It, it, it shouldn't have happened. Now, if that is the seed that sprouted the thug mentality, then he was wrong. I, I can't say it was. I don't know for sure. I can't go back, you know, and tie yeah. it all in. But if it was, then he is culpable because it led to what we have today. And what we have today is a thug mentality. People get hurt. And not just breaking legs. I mean, slashing, yeah. hitting people's and hands, the and puck flying around. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that's like is, a bullet. So. Yeah, that, that's it. So, but when you uh, got a stick in your, you know, tomahawking people, you yeah. know, that that you have skates on. I mean, <laughs> the blades alone. Yeah, yeah, true, true. So, I just if there's a lesson in it to to stop people from getting this kind of severity of an injury. The thug mentality has to go away in hockey. As long as we have the thug mentality, people are going to get hurt. Not necessarily as bad as I did, but people are still. No, going it's to get it's hurt. still happening. You know, people who will get hurt just and worse for that matter. It's going to happen. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you can really do much about that, just because uh, you know there's going to be emotion with competition, and you can't really police that with just you know people in general. You know, so well, let's get specific. I understand your your yeah. point, but let's get specific. Do you remember the Steve Moore and Todd Bertuzzi no, incident? No, I can't say that. Well, he chased him down. Yeah. He was emotional. For sure, yeah. He, he, he should have he said, no, no, this is wrong. And like I said, Mark Crawford was part of the blame to that because the coach telling you to do that. But that means you're not a thinker. You were yeah, Todd Partuzzi at that moment was people good for you know their career, you and know? sometimes it does it breaks yeah. people's necks exactly. You <laughs> that's, know, and that's what it was because, in short, Bartuzzi was taking an order. He was following the coach's direction. Well, it, let's go to war then. If your if your sergeant gave you an immoral order, do you have to follow it? I, well, see, I think they happen all the time when you. When That's not to, the question. I didn't ask if it happened. You, yes, sir. I asked you know, if yes, you have sir, to how high? It. What do you want me to? I mean, they're trained actually. Not yeah. question. Do you, still, st- there's a time when your training has to be in your own head. But I think, that, yeah, but and even if they give you an immoral order, I mean, wasn't that the, the wasn't that what what was the problem with the Vietnam War and all the immorality that the the so called American troops? Yeah, but I think when when you showed that when you're in training and you show that individualism, you're out. You're done. They're going to break you. I agree. To where you are not thinking. I get your point. And now you're not going to question the general who's saying go do whatever. Always question authority. No, always, I agree. Always, always. But that, I didn't say I didn't say you shouldn't follow it, and and you should follow authority when they're telling you to do a moral act. But if they ever tell you to do an immoral act, I mean, let's even not even take it to a war. Let's take it to a workplace scenario. You're working, and your boss tells you to go and do something immoral, even if it's just stealing from the cash register. Are you telling me that you have to follow that? See that, or can you stand on principle not, and say, "No, I'm not going to do that"? Correct. But at that time, I have seen people who had families, and they literally told me, "Look, I got to put family. I got four kids and a wife, and if I don't steal this money, which I know is wrong, but if I don't follow my boss's order, I got a family that I've just let down." So that puts this person. And don't, I I hear you, but there's where it's that whole. It goes back to where now they're thinking of not just themselves, that boss, but their family. The only way the family is a justification is if they were literally starving. 
Then I'm I just get, telling you. No, then thinking. I can get stealing to feed your family because that is for survival not, and that is morality. The point of morality is to further the existence I'm, of mankind. I'm not trying to justify. I'm telling you that person that was told to steal. It's, they got I, other things on their mind when they I'm, do it. It's not just the boss. It's not. It's not legitimate. If, no, I agree. It's not legitimate if their family isn't starving. If it means you lose a job, you lose a job and go find another one. That's that's legitimate. Now, if they're like I said, if their family's starving, I get that because you're you're doing it for a life. That there's no there's nothing more moral than that. However, the situation I put up, put forth, that's not what it is. And there's a time you have to think, and you also have to do it in a time of war. And the only reason I brought up the time of war thing is because bombs are going off all around you. It's a hectic situation. But that's almost like it was in the ice for Todd Partus. Todd Partus. And some of these guys you play with, though, I mean, they played. They were. Or, we didn't play organized hockey. They did, and they had that upbringing to where it was. You know, go out there and take your stick, hack them across the wrist, take the stick across the net, cross check them. I mean, they were tr- they were taught and coached to do that. And now they're out in a recreation league. Bad habits. Well, number one, they're not, they're they're not mindless robots, first of all. Well, they're not. They still have a, a, but, a brain in their heads. But principles can is the last thing on their but mind. My point was, when did I tell you it had to start? When they were young. Yeah. They had to teach them so, then. It's pretty much too late for the ones that are in the adult league now. That no, are, it's not too late. Those are still thinking people. And anyone can turn it around. Anyone can. Anyone can start thinking. Of all the guys. But we you pl- have to do that. But of all the guys thinking. that we play with, hockey, how many are the ones that are actually going to stop and turn it around? Why does that matter? Um, well, I, you, it just, it's just, I would be happy if someone would listen I'll to just this say you and just I, though. one person turned it around. I would feel like then this was this podcast was worth it I would because one person started thinking. Completely agree, but I'm not sure that that one person, just the way the mentality of the population is with uh, philosophy, they even no, no, I don't want to even talk about that. It has nothing to do with it. I mean, they're totally out of whack with their principles. Nobody wants to talk about philosophy. In fact, the majority. The masses are incurably ignorant, as uh, Plato used to say, but nobody wants – they get bored with it. When I start talking about it, you, you can see in their eyes that they're just bored. But what these people don't understand is they live by a philosophy. You have no choice about and that. And that's the problem. Your only choice is which philosophy you live by. That is what needs to be taught to these kids and, and to the adults, that it is philosophical when you say, I'm not going to be a thug. Well, heck, right now with the, with the youth sports league, it's even worse with the parents. I mean, the parents are yelling at the coach or fighting in the stands, and my kid's not playing, and my kid isn't going to come out next week to the game because he got less ice time. I've heard that too. No, it's true, but we're talking about more non-thinkers. <laughs> yeah, that's my point. <laughs> that's, so that doesn't mean we don't try to get them to start thinking. You're right. You're right. It's prevalent throughout our society. But that doesn't mean you, you, you throw away philosophy. It's just a tough fix. It doesn't mean you throw away principle. It means it's harder to fix it, but you got to work harder at it to get it fixed. Well, let's hope and the you, start of this podcast, you know, them listening to the, it's a start. Just, like you said, one person. Uh, let's hope we, we can reach one person and, and, and not just this episode, but all of our episodes. The whole point of our podcast, for me anyways, is to show the, the underlying theme that's behind the scenes of, of hockey, of football, of baseball. It's more than just playing. In fact, any human endeavor is more than what it actually is because you, in order to do any action, you have to think about it first. And the thinking is the, the philosophical part. I agree. So to get back to my story, what I learned from my injury is to appreciate every single day. Because it is so precious and you, know, you don't know but, when you're going to lose it. You hear a lot it. of people say that and yet people just – it's not going to happen to me. 
We hear it all the time. And I'm trying to warn you. I can put, for someone I who it did happen agree. to, it, 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 go hug your wife. Go hug your kids. Hug all your loved ones. Appreciate everything you've got. Don't take one minute for granted. I completely agree. That was my biggest lesson. It took me 10 years to learn that my neck doesn't define me, and that was way too long. I should have learned it much more than a decade, but it happened it, the way it was. But still, I eventually learned. And once again, you only learn by thinking. It's the first step. I and, agree. and I implore everyone who is listening to this to start thinking, to start to, to think for themselves. Understand that thinking is how you live. And when we think about it on a basic level, what is man's tool for survival? An eagle has his talons and his wings. You know, animals live by instinct. Man has no instinct. Man lives by a thinking, rational mind. mind. Without that, it's there's no survival. The the mind is what's necessary first before you can even be moral. So we need to start thinking and then be moral people. Well said. Well, I hope uh, it did reach somebody. Uh, once again, if you can, you want to get in touch with us. Our website is granddesignspodcast.com. Email is granddesigns podcast at yahoo.com follow us on twitter at grand designs pod and follow us on instagram at grand designs podcast this is the grand designs podcast who are you listening to